Oh, hello. Hi. Great to have you back to another episode of There's an Elephant in My Paddock. Nice to be with you. I'm Nicole Bond, the host. Thanks to my producer, Jane Cudahy, for pulling this episode together. Our questions this time comes from Richard Shannon. He's a manager of policy and advocacy with Growcom. And we got him on board because, well, this episode is brought to you by Growcom. Growcom is the peak industry body for commercial horticulture in Queensland. Horticulture is a production of of, uh, fruit, vegetables, nuts, mushrooms and herbs. And in Queensland alone, there are 126 different types of horticulture commodities grown. It is a vibrant primary production industry with a very bright future ahead. This podcast is also made possible thanks to the Rural Financial Counselling Service North Queensland and the Rural Financial Counselling Service Network. So, Richard Shannon, what is your question? The question I'd love you to look into is... Is there any way for commercial horticulture growers in Queensland to ensure their business is resilient in the face of increasingly severe natural disasters? And why is this an important question for us to look at for you, Richard? What what is it that's made this the question you wanted to ask? So there's these little islands of horticultural production, and I suppose they're at risk with a changing climate and increasingly severe natural disasters. You know, there's a risk that we need to find New places to grow the same fruits and vegetables should the conditions change or it become unviable because there's too many disasters. There's a risk around our inability to be flexible and to move or change our our production practices because of the investment over many years that has been made in these particular regions. The infrastructure, not just you know on farm, but also um, you know infrastructure that that is community. And I'm also keen to know from you, because we've been talking a lot about business and, and, and land and, and weather and thing, um, it, but within your question is the term resilient. And is resilience that you that you want to know about, is that just about business resilience? Or like financial I resilience? I th- yeah, look, it's. I think resilience is a product of profitability and that is a, a big challenge. For our, for our industry and our growers, we're asked to take on a lot of risk. You know, the supermarkets push down onto growers, the risk of managing food safety to the farm level, even risk in terms of our prices, right? We send product off to a central market without knowing what we're going to get paid. Growers take on arguably too much risk. And where we can try and address that, I suppose, is through growers um, collaborating and coordinating more. Um, sharing risk between themselves and, I guess, building up a market power so that we might get an extra dollar or two, and I think that would improve our resilience. Okay. I think we've got lots of um, avenues to explore in this question. Thanks very much for putting it forward (laughs) for us, Richard. Well, I think we're going to need to turn this into a two-parter. Okay. Thanks again, Richard. Yes, indeed, a two-parter this is. But before we can start to look at what makes growers resilient – I'd like to find out firsthand how growers experience and respond to natural disasters. Over the last couple of years, central Queensland growers have been belted by cyclones, bushfires and drought. So it's as good as any place to find out what it's like not only to live through natural disaster, but to farm through them. I'm um, Sandra Groves and we live in central Queensland in a family-run farm which grows tropical fruits basically we grow mangoes lychees avocados carambolas and some locusts and a few other odds and sods as well so what happened in 2019 it was a horrendous day 
In fact, on the, the morning, the Saturday morning, Ian and I were heading into town and we made the comment, I hope no one drops a match today because it was one of those really dry, very, very low humidity days, hot north westerly breeze blowing and unfortunately someone did drop a match or start a fire at least and it was basically out of control um it traveled at a massive rate of knots it sort of traveled up the coast fortunately we weren't in the direct path as it headed up the coast and then later that night the breeze swung around and then we had a fire front of about 14 kilometres wide, coming straight for us towards our farms. So we've never had anything like that before. Like there's always been grass fires or bushfires, but not not treetop um, explosions like they were that particular fire. So it was a it was just a bad combination of lots of things went wrong, and and there was just no stopping it. It jumped roads, it jumped jumped all the fire breaks we had put in, and it was yeah, it was quite horrendous. And so. what's your recovery been like? Personally, our farm, we were we were very fortunate. Our son is very actively involved in the Rural Fire Brigade now as Ian and I get older and he's sort of taken over. But he actually had about a month prior to the fires, he'd actually been doing a lot of, we'd been doing a lot of control burns around the farm. But he'd also actually bought another slip-on firefighting unit because he said, oh, well, we've got two units, we should have one on each. And we just... Both Ian and I thought, oh, that's a bit of overkill because we never have that many fires. But anyway, and um, yeah, we just, it had only arrived a short period of time before the fires. And so we did. We had both utes out. We had the tractors out with, with um, the spray rigs on the back ready to go. Um, yeah, and we've got s- some small spray rigs in the, the all terrain type vehicles, which had them all set up as well. And yeah, we had everything, everything we could to throw at it. And we were fortunate enough that we actually did keep it off our property. It was it burnt right to the boundary all the way around us. But we did manage to, we didn't really lose any. We certainly didn't lose any trees. But we did maintain. We, we kept it away from from the orchard, which was good. Got into a few of the grass paddocks, but that was all. So it sounds like you feel like you had a very lucky escape, really, based oh, on extremely. And it wasn't just it wasn't just our doing that was lucky escape. We they had the um, water bombers there, and they were absolutely amazing. There was obviously somebody a spotter plane up high, and every time it would start crowning in the trees near us, there's, we've got a nursery right next door, and it was crowning in the trees right on their boundary. The, the helicopters would suddenly appear. They'd be scooping water up out of our, our little dam and dropping it on them. And they were doing that in a turnaround of only, I think it was three or four minutes in between choppers coming and picking up bucketfuls of water and dropping it. And, and they didn't, they couldn't put it out, but they stopped it from crowning. They kept it down low enough so that then the people on the ground could actually do a bit of control. But there was so much luck involved even though you had a long history of um, considering fire in in your farming plan and and doing your fire breaks and things like that, and the luck that you had on this instant, you still changed the way you plan for fire on your farm. So tell me now, what have you done to make your plan more formalised and why? The reason why is in the past, we had never had that sort of bushfire. We always like we've always had grass fires and we've always had you know, fires going through bush, but it wasn't what we would consider a, a bushfire like they had down south. We always used to think how lucky we were we didn't have those sorts of fires. 
this showed us that, yes, we can have those sorts of fires if the conditions just happen to be bad enough, and they were. And there have been lots of other times when I think conditions have been similar, but we've been lucky that it didn't happen. So some of the things that we're doing now, we are formalising our plan. Like we're, we're actually plotting out areas. We need to reduce the fuel load on a probably a seven-year. Like we, we've sort of taking advice from, from some of the experts and we're thinking around about a seven to maybe even, even as long as 10 years, have a rotation of what, what areas we're going to burn, when we're going to burn them. It, you can't have it all set in concrete because things happen. Like if you get a, a severe storm or a cyclone and you've got a lot of timber down, you're going to obviously have to burn earlier because the fuel load's going to be greater. But we are definitely being a lot more aware of what areas are in danger. We've also maintained our fire breaks very well now. We had fire breaks put in after Cyclone Marcia because we actually had to, well, we decided we had to burn some of the um, timbered areas which hadn't been burnt before because there was a lot of trees down after the cyclone. So we wanted to reduce the fire risk. We could see that it was going to be a big fire risk in the next fire season. So we got in early and and we got some funding Fire Brigade got funding to put fire breaks in our whole area and we've actually been maintaining those fire breaks ever since. Unfortunately, not everyone else did because those areas during this last lot of fires in 2019, they um, became a, a problem area because the fire breaks weren't maintained and so they didn't have easy breaks to backburn from or to control it from. You know, we've talked about the fire. You also touched on the cyclone. These sorts of extreme weather events, um, how do you and and your husband Ian view them in, in the and your son uh, view them in terms of, you know, future planning for your farm? It's interesting. Uh, we were talking to some lychee growers who just bought a farm only 10 years ago, I suppose, they, they bought their lychee farm. And they were saying since then they've had every disaster known to mankind almost, except for the earthquake. We're saying don't talk about that. But we've been farming in the area and, and on the Capricorn Coast since Orion's family has, since 1958. And from 1958 up until 2000, there were no hailstorms in the area. Then in 2004, after a very long drought, we actually had a massive hailstorm. Then in 2020, we've had another hailstorm. In 2015, we had Cyclone Marcia. Um, prior to 2015, the only other cyclone which crossed not actually at the Capricorn Coast, way up at St Lawrence, which was uh, about 150 kilometres north of us, that was back in 1976. So there's definitely been an increase in the number of fairly major disasters or natural disasters happening, well, since 2000, basically, I'd say, up from 1958 up to 2000, other than Cyclone David, and they were growing pineapples at the time, and that didn't actually affect the pineapples too severely. Um, we've had a few floods and things like that, which, again, we're in hilly country. It doesn't affect us too greatly, except for um, access to the southern markets sometimes with road closures. But, yeah, there certainly seems to be an increase in the number of natural disasters we're witnessing. So how is that changing your the way that you farm? Is it changing the way that you farm? Uh, certain certainly has. We've um, started back in the early 90s. We had already started changing things because probably because of drought at the time. 
we started doing a lot more high density planting um, with smaller trees, which helps for a number of number of ways. And I mean, it helps makes it easier for picking. So it certainly helps with labour. And that's oh, that's the other disaster we've had is the pandemic. I've forgotten about that, and that's been a disaster as far as getting pickers and packers and stuff going. But the way we grow trees now, we grow them a lot closer together and a lot smaller. And that makes it easier to pick, but it also makes it easier to net. It also makes the trees sturdier and more resistant to to wind, basically. Um, it also means we can then use like a tunnel netting system because obviously for lychees, if you don't net them, you don't get them because there's a lot of pressure from birds and bats. And we had full overhead nets when we had the first hailstorm and the nets were all destroyed. We had to replace them. We replaced them once and then, of course, with the cyclone, they were destroyed again. We thought, well, this is not viable. It's not a good idea to keep replacing nets. So we put tunnel nets up. The nets are probably only up for six or eight weeks at the most um, over any one particular crop. We put them up as the fruit starts to colour and as soon as we've finished picking, we take them down. And if there's a cyclone or something coming, we can take them down pretty quickly. Then the nets get stored in a um, container so they're relatively safe from wind and storms and hailstorms and fires. My name's Eddie Cowie. I'm a farmer most of my time anyway, but uh, I also have, um, out of necessity, continued to operate in a role as an SDS controller for the um, Rockhampton um, region in central Queensland. Ed is in partnership on a farm with his father and was severely impacted by the same 2019 fires. I essentially responded from Rockhampton down in an operational role initially to support Queensland Police with traffic control, but it became very obvious to myself that um, with the warnings that were being issued that our, our property itself was going to be under direct threat so um, I handed over my operational response um, and I actually proceeded directly to our farm. But on the way through, I suppose it became quite obvious to me with homes that I could see burning down in front of me and people running out of burning homes that it was, it was um, you know, a fire like no other. Um, so I did what I could to try to get people to safety and indicated to them that the way that I had driven through the fire was not the best um, route and provided alternative routes for people getting out of the fire um, as they were trying to evacuate. Um, once I got through to our property, I, I warned my family that there was a significant fire front coming. Um, we'd already started our fire plans that we had in place. And ironically, um, even though we had a very good process of how we would deal with some of the issues, had a fire um, actually impacted our property. On that particular day, we had, in some cases, four particular plans, but none of those actually um, were able to um, support this fire just due to the just the, the catastrophic nature of it. At a point in time, we realised that um, from the spot fires, which now had gone from about four or five through to 50 to 60, that it was uncontrollable and that we then noticed that the main face of the fire was starting to come through. We fought the fire for um, a, a considerable amount of time with a vehicle and a tractor with a 1,500-litre um, water tank on it. But when it became evident that it was to, going to be to no avail and that the fire had then 
um, set, you know, a, a very strong fire in our trees and in our nets that we made the decision that it was um, it was lost to be able to fight the orchard and that we would return back to the home and try to save the home and the sheds. Ed Cowie went on to make the point that in some cases whole generations were wiped out and not able to continue to farm as the cost to rebuild was too great. That's also meant that a lot of farmland has remained unproductive or has been lost to agriculture completely. But in terms of disaster fatigue, that picking up and continuing after multiple disasters, well, Ed has some really unique insights and he has them because he's had roles not only as a farmer, but also in emergency services as a police officer, a fire officer and an SES controller. Um, so to have all of those professions in one and with an in-depth knowledge of farming systems, it makes him a bit special in the context of this discussion. From a person who's experienced that and also had my farming um, experience of, of growing up on a farm, being able to map across some of the things that you need to do as a farmer based upon your life experiences also from a disaster management point of view um, is interesting. You know, I, I know I know that I need to um, prevent things from happening. I know that I need to plan for um, events, good and bad. I know I need to mitigate against certain things. And they're all buzzwords that we've got within emergency management. You know, the phases of... Um, prevention, preparedness, response and recovery is something that we do in farming every day as well. Um, you know, we, we, we prevent weeds, you know, we prevent um, fires by putting in brakes, we prevent, you know, attacks by pests by um, getting in early and, and, and spraying. In many ways, the process is similar. It's just the nature of, of what we're doing on the farm is almost really low scale compared to what I've experienced and what happens within an emergency management, disaster management um, aspect. So, um, but, you know, with that, it's clear that fatigue does creep in and, you know, and I would have to be, you know, I would have to say that I'm not exempt from that. You know, I'm, I've, I've certainly had my challenges when it comes to wondering whether or not I can bounce back from things. You know, I, I, I must admit I challenged myself after the fire as to whether it would be possible to actually um, get back from this from a financial point of view as well as from a an emotional strength point of view. Do I have what it takes? You know, I knew I was going to have to double the impact that I was putting into the farm before the fire, after the fire, just to get me to the point where I could make a conscious decision whether or not it was all going to be worth it. So uh, knowing that I also had done that only five, four years beforehand with Cyclone Marcia and knowing that, um, you know, we'd struggled with a drought in that time frame that significantly uh, reduced our, our cropping yield, uh, were all things that you sort of have to look at and say, is it actually worth it? And, and make a decision as to whether you think it's worth it. But I think the more that we are exposed to disasters and the more that we understand that the recovery follows those disasters, the more that we can actually start to become resilient in ensuring that our farms will be sustainable into the future. So, um, again, I look at it that once you identify the risk that you may have on your property and you actually look at building in um, some safeguards around those risks and, and looking at how I can better prevent, prepare and mitigate 
certain things helps to develop up um, a better sustainable farm, which in turn assists you in that in when you do need to recover with with a, a heightened sense of recovery and um, and resilience. So uh, resilience, obviously, as we know, is is the ability to deal with things better next time. Um, and to have the skills, knowledge, and ability to be able to prove how it is that we may have to, you know, deal with things if it was to occur again. And I think that with these experiences being able to be drawn from my emergency management background um, with farming has allowed us to probably be a little bit more, you know, I think a little bit more confident that we can bounce back. What are the signs that that we're going from being able to build resilience to disaster fatigue? Yeah, I, I think that there's a number of different indicators there. I think, um, you know, farmers, we don't have a very strong social connection in many different areas. It's not like, um, you know, you can pop down to the local coffee shop and catch up with the friends to, to, to have that, um, that, uh, that morning cup of tea and, and, um, and chat. So I would suggest that, you know, there are indicators there that, when you start to withdraw from even the the simplest of, of things that you need to be um, involved in, you know, I think some of the other indicators that you've got there are, um, you know, the ability to be able to make a, a firm decision. You know, people become unsure of what they're going to do. Is the decision that I'm going to make going to be the right one? Not just now, but for the future. You know, so so the ability to be able to, um, look at something and say, this is what I need to do to ensure that in 12 months' time this is going to be in place. Well, what we're seeing also is um, a heightened increase in in mental health generally within people, you know, the um, the, the heightened increase in, in things like depression, you know, um, people who are becoming emotionally drained from um, a lot of these events you know, we, we, we've we've also seen a, a, an increase in domestic violence is, issues after after disasters. That's another indicator that you know things are not um, as they should be. You know, I think that from a community perspective, and also from from family and friends, you know, that financial hardship that comes. You know, the fact is, um, you know, that that there are many people out there because their only income is drawn from their farm, and there is no income. That a lot of people, you know, they withdraw from even the basic things. You know, their their, their weekly grocery process will 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 cease. You know, it's it's basic foods for basic living. As far as agriculture goes, as far as growers go, as far as the government departments who support or the member groups uh, who support. Have we got it right, or is there something missing, or um, you know? Is look, there... I, I think. Um, look, it's a great question and, and one that I've pondered um, from my two different, if you want to, angles. And and I would say that um, there are many um, opportunities and many many funding opportunities um, out there for for areas that have been impacted by disasters, and where it's easy to see a lot of those operational within towns where you know you might have had or a cyclone or a storm where there's um, a lot of resources in a very tight area the, the the problem when it comes to farming is we can be so diverse we can be so far away from where that support is there and and um and not everyone um particularly farmers are happy to reach out and ask for help sometimes 
you know, you've got to be there dangling a cup of tea um, or, or dangling um, some type of information to them about farming that then allows you to be able to get a foot in the door. And I think that if there is a gap, the gap is a collective opportunity of, you know, of a number of key community groups or government departments to whom they can provide a lot more information than just what they're delivering from a from a um, an agency point of view. And I'll give the example that directly after the the impact, we had you know a, a rapid assessment process that occurred, and then from that, that information um, is pumped into community groups. But you know, of course, after the fire, you know, it was oh, you know, we're all right, don't worry about that. And I suppose for some people, where they say there are no impacts, and there have been impacts, they say that just because. They think that someone else better off may need that help. And I think that being able to do an outreach where, you know, even from some of our Department of Agriculture or, you know, farming, where we can actually, um, after an event, get outreach opportunities to go to farms and, and just ask and, and observe ourselves what might be happening is a really good example to actually capture a broader understanding of what's occurred. I just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge our episode sponsor, Growcom. Growcom promotes practices that are proactive to get in front of government regulation and boost social licence. In terms of advocacy and service, Growcom covers a wide spectrum of issues that growers face, from workplace relations and employment practices to chemical use and efficient application systems. In an age where consumers have more and more to say about how they source food based on sustainable and ethical farming systems, Growcom strives to expand uptake of the best management practices and provide a voice for growers to support what they do best. And of course, that is sustainably grow fresh fruit, vegetable, nut and herb produce. Thanks for sponsoring this episode, Growcom. Then in 2004, after a very long drought, we actually had a massive hailstorm. Then in 2020, we've had another hailstorm. In 2015, we had Cyclone Marcia. Um, We've had a few floods and things like that. As you heard, Sandy Groves has experienced more intense and more frequent natural disasters in recent years. But is that widespread? And can growers all over the country expect the same? And if we can, how do producers in productive areas who keep having to back up disaster after disaster continue to be profitable? Will the government step in or are the politicians likely to get disaster weary in the hip pocket as well? It's a grim thought, but unfortunately, our next guest won't be allaying any of our concerns. Richard Eckhart. I'm a professor in the Faculty of Veterinary and Agricultural Sciences, the University of Melbourne. I also lead the Primary Industries Climate Challenges Centre at the university, which focuses on all things to do with climate change, extreme events, and carbon neutral agriculture and mitigation. I would probably spend about 60% of my time on carbon neutral agriculture, the CN30 strategy, how we can come up with methane-free cattle, <laughs> all of those things, um, uh, and then probably spend about 40% of my time on um, 
the impact of climate change itself on agriculture, um, which has trended from originally just looking at average change of climate through to, well, actually, it's probably extreme events along the way that will have a bigger impact in the short term. Yeah, look, uh, you know, climate change um, is here. The last 20 years of actual experience, more so in southern Australia than northern Australia, um, we have seen a very clear impact. So, you know, we've quantified the impact on the southern wheat industry. We've looked at the dairy industry. We've looked at the grazing industries. Um, and they all have a very clear signal um, of climate change having a clear impact on reducing productivity growth in the last 20 years. Um, so that, that's pretty clear. I, I make a distinction between north and south because in southern Australia, the southward movement of weather systems is more clear, whereas in northern Australia, there's very high variability in, in weather. I mean, where you are in Longreach, you know, you could have a storm pass within kilometres of your property and, well, it didn't get you, it got the neighbour. Mm. Um, the, so the, the, the trends are a lot less clear. So we know temperatures are increasing, so extreme heat is pretty obvious. But, um, but rainfall and rainfall distribution is so variable that it's hard to pick up a trend in northern Australia. If you were to give, you know, uh, uh, I mean, I know you've split it into the two, but um, when you, how do, what do you consider the climate situation uh, in Australia to be? Obviously, you're detecting that change in southern Australia more, but overall, what would you say about the climate situation? Look, we 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 are seeing trends in. Um, uh, more extreme events, and what I mean by extreme events is it's it's fairly obvious that the number of days over 40 degrees in Longreach is going to increase. That you know the baseline has shifted, and there might be a day where we actually say, well, let's shift that baseline because you know a normal day is 35 through summer, and well, so 40 is no longer an extreme event. Um, but that's just readjusting to our new reality. The difference is, of course, that. Plants have a fairly limited inbuilt ability to handle temperature ranges, and so um, you know while we can adjust what we think is a heat heat event based on a new baseline, um, a mango tree still has the same internal requirement. Um, and so there's there's two issues there. The one is the extreme heat that can cause fruit burn or can cause uh, longer term damage to to per, particularly perennial horticulture where you've got trees that take 10 to 12 years before they are really productive. And so your lead time or your, your, the damage is that much greater. The second one probably for northern Australia is the southward movement and the intensification of cyclones that we've seen. The number of cyclones doesn't seem to have increased, but the intensity or the category of the ones we do get seems to have increased. And so that has quite a material impact on how we design perennial horticulture in particular, trees that that you know are going to take another ten years to recover, um, and um, and so that has less of an impact on annual horticulture where you can choose to plant cauliflower or you can recover from a lost cauliflower crop as a result of a cyclone or a heat wave event. But if you have perennial trees that might be you know macadamia nuts or, or mangoes, it's going to take your whole generation to get those back up and productive again. 
Mm. And what about, I mean, I'm based in uh, Northern Australia, but uh, we have podcast listeners from all around uh, the country. So as far as um, those disasters, more natural disasters, are you also, put, um, you know, putting fire and bushfire into that category as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, a bushfire can can have a quite a marked effect on, um, say, perennial horticulture. In, um, for example, smoke taint on on wine has a dramatic impact. There's some very impressive figures, well, depressing figures, on the impact that smoke taint from a bushfire adjacent to a vineyard would have on completely destroying the wine crop for that year. Um, so that that's quite a big issue. That isn't even about direct fire impact. Um, so you've got direct fire impact that can have a, an impact on, say, perennial trees, uh, horticultural trees. Um, but smoke taint itself on on um, some of the poems, stone fruit and, and vines can have quite a big impact. So definitely um, fire um, would, would have an impact. We would probably say, you know, for areas like the Goulburn Valley, fruit burn is probably the bigger issue at the moment. Uh, the need to put shade cloth over perennial fruits um, to to guard against the uh, extreme extreme events can result in spoilage of fruit. I think that's probably the the bigger issue, and uh, you know that's just that's just a, a cost, and we're seeing more and more of that coming into the industry because of that. Are you anticipating that horticulture is going to be one of the most impacted um, forms of agriculture with the changing climate? Well, what we're seeing already is horticulture on the move. Um, so we, we've actually, in Victoria, for example, we've seen Pinot Noir grapes move to Tasmania. Uh, so Brown Brothers, a very uh, well-known storyline, uh, they were the first movers and they've made a lot of money out of moving some of their vineyards to Tasmania when they, they took the science seriously. And they said, well, you know, in 20 years' time, we will not be able to grow Pinot Noir in Victoria because it'll be too hot. Uh, and so they've moved. We've seen apples and cherries, for example, move to Tasmania because in the Golden Valley, there would be some winters where they don't get the chilling requirements they need anymore. So they need a certain number of chilling hours for the fruit, for the plants to become reproductive and produce fruit. If they don't get those chilling requirements because the nighttime temperatures are too warm, well, they have to relocate because there's no other option other than to move south. We, we have seen horticulture already on the move because they have to do these, you know, they have to plan in decadal time steps. Obviously, Tasmania is only big enough, <laughs> it's only a certain size. Are you anticipating that we'll see more kind of um, indoor horticulture or uh, glasshouse or greenhouse horticulture happening? Yeah, look, I, I do think we'll see more of the sundrop farms. I don't know if you're familiar with the sundrop farms in, in the uh, Air Peninsula, yeah. um, but it's it's fully under polyglass um, and they use concentrated solar to desalinate seawater and irrigate uh, tomatoes pretty much in the desert. Um, and I, I think that that's a model that we could start looking at as, you know, where do we go in future where water is a limitation? Well, Sundrop got around that by desalinating using concentrated solar. So they've got around seasonality by going under plexiglass. They've got around soil issues by doing it, you know, not hydroponically, but in, in cultured soil. So, you know, they've gone to an area that was stony ground, considered to have almost no agricultural value, and they're producing tomatoes out of um, 
what would you call a fairly sustainable system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, with your experience <laughs> with the broader agriculture too, in, including those trials that you've been doing in North and West Queensland, would it be worth um, talking about those? You know, a lot of horticulture is farmed um, along the coast, um, but, you know, governments are starting to, We, you know, in the north here we hear about, you know, the idea of um, food bowls, or, you know, growing cotton in places where there's lots of water. Um, I, I recently even went to Kananurra and, and was amazed at the, you know, production there in the middle of what felt like nowhere. Yeah, look, Kananurra is a, a good example of um, successes and failures. Um where the soils are adequate, the water allocation is, is almost limitless from, from the order of a scheme. Um, but there wasn't forethought in providing proximal access to markets. And so there have been a number of schemes that have got up and gone, have started in perennial or annual horticulture there. But if you look at most of what's produced is um, castor oil and, um, uh, and, and, and tree crops because they, they can handle the, the, the sort of distance to market. So I think where we need to go with climate change adaptation is the schemes like the ORD can be used, but we have to think about how we get the produce out very efficiently from these remote locations. So I, I think there's no doubt there's plenty of water there. Um, there's plenty of good soil there. Um, but unless you've thought about the market and the access to market, particularly for annual horticulture, well, and for your tree horticulture, where your uh, refrigeration is actually quite critical and your distance to market is quite critical. We've got to think about those those uh, export markets. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I think, you know, we can start thinking more about where the water is available, which is definitely in northern Australia, the long-term climate signal isn't suggesting a lack of water. Um, the soils are not that great in a lot of areas, so we have to be more careful about where we choose those soils. But certainly if we can harness the sun and the water, uh, there is potential. Okay. Now, we've seen um, the release of the IPCC report. Um, what policy options are there for horticulture and agriculture more broadly in there? Well, there's a couple of things that I think come out. Um, you know, there's no doubt that um, certain agricultural systems produce significantly more greenhouse gas emissions than others. So in a carbon-constrained world, you would find horticulture is generally at the lower end of the emissions per unit product. So they have a natural advantage there and, you know, underground drip irrigation, underground um, drip of, of nitrogen, for example, into horticulture is a lot more benign than large-scale surface application of fertilisers. So that, that's an inherent advantage they have. Um, in terms of, terms of, of, of uh, policies, they would more be around um, looking at uh, ways to incentivize research that can deliver the solutions. See, for, for, um, for horticulture, what we need is varieties uh, that can handle the, the greater heat or transitions from particular styles of horticulture into more resilient types of horticulture. Um, what do I mean by that? For example, in, in Mildura, the grapevine uh, viticulturalists there that have had to start looking at more southern Italian varieties of grapes, the sort of darker red grapes that, um, that can handle the higher heat from those sort of Mediterranean regions because they can see the day coming where your traditional Shiraz or Cabernet grapes can no longer handle the heat regime they've got. So, um, you know, it's those kind of things. It, it's it's 
government policies incentivizing research solutions. The, the trick we've got with policy and adaptation, climate change adaptation, is that um, you, you can't tell farmers what to do. Uh, we, we're in a free market where farmers make their own choices. What, what we can do in, in, in policy is decide we're going to put money into providing solutions for farmers so that when they need to adapt, we have the solutions. We've removed the barriers to adaptation. We've got the new evaluated agricultural systems in place or the science evaluated for them so that when they need to adapt, we've got the solutions. We don't tell farmers what to do in regions. They make those decisions themselves. Um, but what we can do is facilitate the transition. Do you think that farmers, because this um, whole kind of series is about resilience and and part of that is being resilient and being able to bounce back from natural res- disasters, And uh, do you think that um, farmers are already tapping into or already understanding that those natural disasters going to be more frequent or are they tend to be we've just had a, a run of bad luck? I, I think you'll find there's a, there's a sort of separation going on where the proactive farmers are well on top of it. Um, you know, we, we have this national program called Forewarned is Forearmed, which is about working with the Bureau of Meteorology on uh, tools for farmers to predict extreme events and how they can then proactively manage those. And through a series of reference groups that we've been meeting with farmers in various industries, uh, they've been telling us these are the extreme events of consequence to us. And But then we also, with those same reference groups, been asking, well, okay, if those are your extreme events, what is your first course of action? What is your proactive way of managing that? And the reference groups we're working with have all got proactive plans in place as to, you know, we now have, like the dairy farmers in South Gippsland would have three years worth of hay or silage stored up ahead of them, so that if they hit two years worth of drought, they can still survive. Um, and we're seeing more and more of those that kind of thinking going in. Um, we saw a story of a, um, a, uh, a fruit grower in far north Queensland coming down to Victoria to study trellis structures that can handle cyclones. And came up with a design for using sort of palm fruit in the Golden Valley as a, as a model, came up with a trellis structure that can actually handle cyclones and there's a great good news story there. So um, government getting involved or the industries getting involved in doing the research that can come up with those solutions I think is really important. So when the more proactive farmers want to go there, those solutions are sitting there waiting for them. And if you're a regular listener to our podcast, you'll remember our previous episode on insurance and insurance possibilities for farmers um, and producers going forward. It's one to check out if you are interested in other research and changes being made in this sphere. Well, while that may not have been the most uplifting interview, it is great and encouraging to hear proactive responses. But what about horticulture industry resilience? not just adaptation, what are the opportunities for enhancing resilience 
not only those adaptations that they're making, the changing expectations around climate events. Well, more to come on that topic in part two of this Elephant in the Paddock podcast. Thanks to producer Jane Cudahy, episode sponsor Growcom and the continued support from the Rural Financial Counselling Service North Queensland and RFCS Network. Don't forget to leave us a review on your favourite podcast platform and if you do have your own elephant in the paddock uh, question that you'd like us to look into, contact us through our socials. We'd love to hear from you. Hi, my name is Steve Barnard. I'm the Chief Executive Officer at Growcom. Growcom is very proud to be associated with this podcast. Growcom is here for commercial horticulture growers, providing strong advocacy and a voice for the industry. We provide valuable services such as workplace relations and labour advice, information and updates. We provide resources and support for sustainable and ethical farm management practices through our key flagship programs such as Fair Farms, Port360 and InfoPest. We also provide fruit and vegetable market price information through our publication Fruit and Vegetable News. We also support our industry in times of crisis, which can occur as a result of natural disasters such as floods, cyclones and bushfires. Delivering recovery programs which accelerate the industry in getting back on its feet so that they can be more prepared, resilient and get back to doing what they do best, growing premium fruit, vegetables, nuts and herbs. Being a member of Growcom means being part of a successful and exciting agriculture sector. Horticulture has a bright future in Queensland and we welcome commercial horticulture growers and producers to join us in this journey so that we can represent them as a state and at a national level in the best way possible.